Well, we are right in the middle of a series that we're calling um, The Story of God in Six Acts. Kind of giving you the overview of who God is and what he's trying to do in six acts, almost like it was a story. Because this is what the Bible says. And you can just see that right there. Here's, I am, God says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Okay, in other words, this story is by God, written by God, it's about God, he's the character, he's the one who causes it to be written, he's the one who guides the writing, this book is about him, the whole story is not about you, it's not about angels, it's not about the spiritual world, it's about God, the story of God. And I'm going to do something for you right now, because for some of you, I think the Bible is a mysterious book. You know, you, 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 get, this, you get this book, and some of you have Bibles that are really, really thick. My Bible is really thin because my Bible is on my phone and uh, my iPad. That's where I do my study. But uh, some of you have these great big thick, and you look at that book and you go, wow, that's a mysterious looking book. What's in there? You know, do, 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 Old and New Testament and the way it's all arranged. I'm going to give you right now an outline of the Bible in four steps. All right? Here it is. Ready? First of all is this. Genesis 1 and 2 is called God's intention. This is what God intended the world and humanity to be. This is what he set up. This was his plan. Genesis chapter 3 is called sin's inception. Here's where his perfect world is broken up in one chapter. We'll be talking about that a little bit more in a moment. Then the rest of the Bible from Genesis chapter 4 through Jude, I think your notes say through Third John, that's wrong, it's Jude. Genesis chapter 4 through Jude is called God's intervention. Here's how God intervenes to try to get his world back. And finally, the book of the Revelation is called the final restoration. That's it. Everything that's happening in there, I just outlined for you. God's plan, why it went wrong, what he's going to do about it, and the very end when he makes it all right. That's the Bible. That's its purpose. And we're looking at this whole thing in terms of a story. And a good story has these elements. We've talked about them already. There's the character and setting. There's the tension that comes in. There's the plot and how that tension gets resolved. So often there's intermission. And there is an intermission. I'll tell you about the intermission next week, all right? And then there's a climax to the story. And then complications that come in. And finally, the happy ending. That is the story of God. But please remember, it's not your story. It's not the story of humanity. It's the story of God. He is the beginning and the end, and he fills in the middle. It's about him. So far, we've looked at this. The character and setting. The setting is all the creation. It's not the spiritual world. It's creation. This is where God is working. Yes, there is a spiritual world. You don't need to know much about it. Anything you need to know about the spiritual world is already found where? Bible. If it's not in there, you don't need to know it. doesn't mean it's not true. It just means if it was important, it would be in the Bible. Okay? Simple. And the character of this story is God. There are no supporting characters. Remember, if there's going to be an Oscar, there wouldn't be a, the, the, the main actor and then the supporting actor. There are no supporting actors. God is it. It's his story. History. The Bible, as I told you last week, is an autobiography. It's all about him, and it's written by him. Now, he used human people to do this and work through them, but the Spirit guided it all. It's all about then comes act two and we call it the tension i told you last week mankind goes rogue 
That's Genesis chapter 3. And I also told you last week that there was some music. I've got it for you. If we could listen to or we had music that would symbolize Act 1, which is Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it would sound like this. Isn't that great? Okay, then we move to the tension, which is Genesis chapter 3. Sounds like this. Genesis chapter 3. All right? That's enough. Okay? <laughs> all right that gives you the idea of what's happened here in acts and then act one where the creation and god creates a wonderful world and he creates beauty and he loves that guess what that's what he wants for your life he's trying to create something beautiful in your life that's what he's trying to do but the tension came in and his perfect world was ruined because human beings went rogue we decided to do our own thing we didn't trust him. We went our own way. What I told you last week was, and what we discovered is, when we say God created everything good, that's not complete. Because it seems to say that, that when God created something that had a goodness of its own, that he could walk away from it and it would stay good because he created that thing good. Shake your little heads just like this. It didn't happen. God creates something and it's good because he's in a relationship with it. It doesn't have goodness in its own. The world doesn't have goodness in its own. You don't have goodness on your own. God, in perfect relationship, brings perfect goodness to his creation and to his people. But that relationship is broken. That relationship is sick. That relationship is wounded. And when he pulls back in relationship because we go our own way, the world is revealed for what it really is without him. We are revealed for what we really are without him. So don't think in your mind that, that God created something good and then walked away and slowly it went bad. He created things good because he was in relationship with those things. Perfect relationship, perfect goodness. Break that relationship. When you have a sick relationship, you have sick goodness. That's why we know what we should do. That's why we, we have this idea of, of what things should be, but we can't get there. We have this idea of the way things should operate and how people should treat each other and how politicians should work. But we can't seem to get there. Because God is no longer in perfect relationship with his creation. Act 1, character and setting. Act 2 was the tension. He has a goal now. His world, which was perfect, is now broken. His goal, his one goal is this. Restoration. He wants to restore it all back to its pristine condition. Have you ever 
had your computer or something go wrong and, and there's a little button on there that says restore the factory default settings, you know, kind of restore it back to the way it was. That's what God wants to do. He wants to restore it back to what he originally, it was God's intention. His intention hasn't changed. He wants to bring the world back to its original state. This is what the Bible says. Behold, God says, I will create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come. You remember that, and you probably listen to that, that passage, and you think, well, that's from the book of the Revelation. No, it's not. It's from the book of Isaiah. Hundreds of years before Jesus, hundreds of years before Jesus, God said, I'm going to start all over. I'm going to bring it all back. I'm going to make a brand new heaven and earth. That's been his plan. Because this earth is so corrupted, he's got to do it again. But it's really not completely starting over. Because he wants to take one precious thing with him. If your house is on fire, and you were calm enough in the midst of all that, you would say to yourself, you know what, I have insurance, we'll build it again, no big deal. But there's something very precious that you would take with you, because you can't start over again. It's called your family. You'd make sure that they get out. The house can burn. The pictures and the documents and the furniture can go. I mean, it's tragic and it hurts, but you got insurance, it'll all put it back. But your family, you make sure they come with you. Yes, God is going to restore everything. He's going to recreate the world, but there's one precious thing that he wants to take with him, and that's you. He doesn't want you destroyed. He wants to bring you into his brand new creation. How's he going to do it? Hey, the world is created. It's perfect. Tension comes in. Mankind goes rogue. The world falls apart. God says, I'm going to recreate it. I can recreate everything, but I don't want to recreate these human beings. They're precious to me. I'm going to bring them with me into my new creation. How is he going to get that done? That, my friends, is called the plot. And in the plot... This is what we're going to find out. God restores relationship. He restores humanity. He restores his kingdom. And then he restores creation. There it is. He's going to restore a relationship. Then he's going to restore humanity. He's going to restore the kingdom through the church. Then he's going to restore a creation with a brand new creation. One more time. He's going to restore a relationship through his son, Jesus Christ. He's going to restore humanity through giving of the Holy Spirit so that we can become better than we really are and are that we are right now, that we can become the people we're supposed to be. He's going to restore the kingdom by giving the church that will bring the kingdom back to earth and he'll restore creation by a brand new heaven and earth. That's what he's going to do. That's the plot. Today we're going to look at the first and the most important part, restoring relationship. He can make another world, guys. He can't make another you. Do you understand that? You are absolutely unique. There has never been anybody exactly like you and there never will be. You are a unique creation on this planet. And he will not make another one like you. Oh, we can make a new earth. Clouds, planets, piece of cake. Animals, easily done. You, 
He doesn't want to make a new you. He wants to save you. That's what the plot's all about. Here's how he's going to do it. He's going to restore relationship, and this is so strange, through faith in a single, innocent representative. How is God going to bring you back to himself? How is he going to fix this relationship? Well, he's going to do it through faith in a single, innocent representative. And if that doesn't make any sense, well, welcome to the club. Anybody who says they understand how that happens is not, they've missed the whole point. God is doing it in such a way that doesn't make sense. This is what, um, it's not up here, but let me read it for you from Isaiah 53.1. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? If we were going to sit down before we knew any of this and said, okay, how will God bring people back to himself? Who would come up with this? Nobody. God comes up with this. Even in the New Testament, it says this, where's the wise man? Where's the scholar? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, for since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him. In other words, we can't know him through our own thinking process. God was pleased through the foolishness of what has been preached to save those who believe. You can't understand it. And I've gone over this with you time and time again. No one's challenged me on it yet so far, although some of you out there think you can. That's all right. If you want to meet with me and try to explain to me the cross and, and the sacrifice, and so it'll all make sense to you, I will blow you out of the water. I love you dearly. My wife was really upset one time when I said that. She said, no one's going to talk to you anymore. Yeah, I understand. Okay. I will, I will be gentle. All I'm saying is, every argument you come with me, I will be able to give you a counter-argument. Because God has done it in such a way that it doesn't make sense. If it makes sense to you, then you don't understand it. Because it's not supposed to make sense. If it was something of your mind, your own wisdom, your own understanding, if you said, oh no, I fully understand what God is doing here, it wouldn't be by faith anymore, would it? I don't need faith to know that two plus two is four. I can look at it. I've got two things here and I have two things there and I count them. One, two, two plus two is four. No faith. God has created in such a way that you live by faith. If it makes sense to you, it's not faith anymore. Here's what we know. For whatever reason, God has chosen to reconcile us to him through faith in a single innocent representative. Now, all of the Old Testament is designed to do this. Ready? Here we go. First of all, if this is going to happen, here's the story, here's the plot. He has to convince us of the need because we are masters of denial, aren't we, as human beings? Oh, I'm okay. God loves me. It's all right. No big deal. I haven't sinned. I'm not away from him. It wasn't my fault. God will understand. I have some relatives who actually believe that when they're all, when it's all done and they meet God face to face, they're just going to sit down and kind of, you know, talk about it and work it all out. They go, oh my word. I, yeah, you will sit down with God face to face, but I don't think the conversation's going to go the way you think it's going to go. Adam, when he's confronted with his sin, said what? Well, it's the woman you gave me. That's really your fault, God. When Eve is confronted with her sin, she says, well, it was a snake. That was the problem. No, it's not. It's us. See, here's the point that God has to get across. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor is ear too dull to hear, but your iniquities have separated you from God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. Of course God can save you. 
The problem is our sin. The problem is we all go rogue. The problem is we do things that break that relationship. God wants us back. But there's this huge wall that we call sin. And it separates us. See, here's the truth right here. This is what he's trying to get across. First of all, we sinned. It's serious. And we can't fix it ourselves, okay? That's it. We've sinned. It's serious. And we can't fix it ourselves. First of all, a lot of times we say, oh, no, we haven't sinned. It's no big deal. Or we say, yeah, we have sinned, but, but at least it's not as bad as what? The guy next to me. Okay, Father, I've sinned, but did you see the guy next to me? Oh, man, that's a sinner. Or we say, you know, okay, I've sinned. I was serious, but I'll tell you what, Father, I'll fix it. I'll make it right. God says, no, you can't. You can't make it right. You can't do it on your own. See, there's a cost for sin. God has to get that across to us. There is a cost for sin. There's no freebies there. There's a price to pay. When Adam and Eve sinned, remember what we talked about last week, is their sexuality prior to their sin was good and natural and just the way it should be. They could walk around naked. It was no problem. And it wasn't that there was no sex, because remember, God had already told them in Genesis chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply, and it isn't by osmosis, okay? It's sex. (laughs) But in Genesis chapter 1, it's pure, it's right, it's the way it should be. Then comes sin. Then comes that separation from God, and the flesh takes over. And suddenly, nakedness leads to lust. And it leads to things that are not right. They have to cover their nakedness for the first time. Not because there was no sex before that, but because sex was pure before that. See, that's what sin does. It takes good things, twists it. Is money good or bad? Just money. Sin twists it to greed. Is sex good or bad? It's good. Sin twists it into lust. That's what happens. When God finally confronts them and goes through the whole nonsense, and now we see that, that relationship completely broken because they have to leave his presence, he replaces their fig leaves or whatever it was with what? How did he get those animal hides? Something died, didn't it? In his perfect world, God had to take innocent animals and kill them, remove their skin as a covering for his two people who blew it. There is a cost for sin. There's a cost when we sin. It's serious, guys. And you can't fix it. You ever been in that situation where you knew you blew it with somebody and and you did something that really hurt them or you break something that's very special to someone? You say, I'll take care of it. I'll fix it. I'll fix it. There's something inside of you that says, I just want to fix it. Look, I'll I'll pay for it. I'll buy you a new one. I'll, I'll fix it. You come to God, look, I'll fix it. I'll, I'll, I'll.
The next thing he's got to tell us, the next thing he's got to get across in this whole plot, first of all, of course, is that we've sinned and it's serious. We can't fix it. How about this? He has to demonstrate his goodness. Here's why. God does not want us to fall in love with him because we're afraid of him. That's not love. And love is what he's really looking for, isn't it? This is the highest statement of all of Israel. It's called the Shema. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one. You've heard that. The next part, you've also heard Jesus didn't realize we went together. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus, a little bit later on, hundreds of years later, is going to say that's the most important commandment, and it wasn't even one of the Ten Commandments. It's called the Shema. It's how they start every single service in a Jewish synagogue. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you will love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He didn't say you will fear the Lord. Love him. How do you love someone that you're afraid of? Well, you don't. So God shows his goodness. He has to show us that he is worthy of our love, so to speak. Because when you really see God, what's not to love? Unless, of course, in your mind, God's just always ticked off at you. When you think of God, is he smiling? When he thinks of your life, is he smiling? When you envision that, that time that you will meet him face to face, will he have a frown? See, some of you see God that way, don't you? God is just that great big killjoy in the sky. He's just so ticked off at you because of how you live. It's not true. Our Father loves you. You are the apple of his eye. And he knows all about you. Yes, he knows you're not perfect. He knows it. But he loves you so much. He can't force us. He doesn't want us to serve him out of fear. So this is what he shows. Look at this passage. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he's made. I love the slow to anger part because I've told you before, the Hebrews like to think in picture, word pictures, and it actually says, God is slow to get a big red nose. That's what it says, but we don't translate it that way. Because, of course, to the Hebrew mind, when you get really mad, you kind of go <laughs> in your nose, and if it's really bad, your head explodes. Ah! Okay, you seen that in cartoons? That's kind of the way they had it. Okay. It says, God is slow to get a big red nose. In other words, God is slow. Is he going to get angry? Certainly. What parent doesn't? When you mess up, Certainly he's going to say, look, we need discipline here. He's not just Santa Claus, but he is rich in love and good to all, and he has compassion on all that he has made. God has to show the world how much he loves them so that we can then love him back. Some of you still aren't there yet, are you? Some of you are still serving him out of fear because you don't want to go to hell. Okay, that's not bad. That's a, I guess it's a good place to start. But some of you are still there after years. What's wrong? Have you walked with God for years and you still don't get the fact? He loves you? He's merciful and gracious to you? Do you serve Him because you're afraid of hell or do you serve Him because you love Him? That's what He's trying to get across here. How does he do that? Well, first of all, through the prophets, there's that self-revelation. As he comes in and he shares with the prophets and with the people who he is. He gives them loving care. He gives them patience. 
mercy and forgiveness. Let me show you how patient he was. He begins to tell them about some of the problems they've got and some of the things he's going to have to do about it about 400 years. About 400 years earlier, he says, now look, if you guys don't straighten up, I'm going to send you into bondage. I'm going to actually have somebody come and, and take you captive, and I'm going to send you away, but I'm going to bring you back. Don't worry about it. But if you change the way you're living, you won't have to go into bondage or captivity, is what he's talking about to the nation of Israel. How long does he give them to change the way they're living? About 400 years. That's patient. Before he finally comes to him and says, look, I've put up with it long enough. Sorry. You're going into bondage and captivity. This generation's going to leave for a while, but don't worry. I'm going to bring you back. And about 70 years later, he does. And the nation of Israel comes back. 400 years. How patient are you with your children? About 30 seconds. That's long. That's pretty good. I'm impressed. <laughs> Our Father is so patient. Don't get in your mind that, that He's this cruel, vicious person, and as soon as you step out of line, BAM! Boy, He got you. What God are you serving? Where do you get that? Our Father loves us so much. He knows your sin. He knows your brokenness. He knows where He wants to work. And he knows that for most of us, it's two steps forward and one and nine, ten steps back. And he says, let's keep moving. Let's keep moving. I'll forgive you. Let's move. I'll give you grace and mercy. Let's move forward. Because the next thing he's going to do in this whole plot of trying to get us to understand that, that he's going to bring us back through faith in this single sacrifice. First one has to tell us, you're a sinner, you know it, and you can't fix it yourself, but I love you so much, I'm going to take care of it. He has to do this, then he has to provide the innocent substitute. Here's where God, in this story, tries to get us to understand that the way he's going to do this is through an innocent substitute. Does that make sense to you? If it does, no, you're wrong. It doesn't make any sense. This is the way he's going to do it doesn't make any sense. That's why it's called foolishness. It's just that's how he's chosen to do it. Why? I have no idea. He could have done it lots of different ways. This is the one he chose. We can't take care of our own sin. Something precious is going to die for us. Why? Because God has decided something precious is going to die for us. In Adam and Eve, it was an animal. I don't know what kind of animal. One of his creation. And to die. In the Old Testament, God tries to get across this point through a lamb. A lamb. The Barhams are here, aren't they? Oh, one of the Barhams. You guys really big into lambs every, every spring, right? I mean, I talk to you guys about the lambing and everything. Yeah, right, right. <coughs> There's just nothing cuter in this world than a lamb, guys. I mean, wow. God takes this precious, innocent, cute little animal, and he says, it's got to die, and you've got to kill it. This is where it started right here, this passage. Then Moses summoned all the elders. This is after God had spoken. This is the Exodus. This is when God's people had been in bondage in, in Egypt for 400 years, and God's about to bring them out. But before he brings them out, 
He starts something to get across to them this whole idea that something innocent is going to die in his plan. Moses summoned the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Here's what they were supposed to do. Go out and find this precious, cute little lamb and live with it for a little while. Get to know it. Make it your pet. And then on a specific night, I want you to slit its throat right there in your living room and drain the blood into the trough by the door. This is how God is going to get across the idea of a representative sacrifice. It's part of the plot. He starts what's called Passover. That time when, when God said, tonight, it's the final thing, this is how he's going to get his people out of Egypt. He's tried there have been nine plagues. They haven't let him go. Finally, God says, here's the tenth plague. Tonight, the firstborn of everybody in Egypt will die. Everybody. Not just the Egyptians. Everybody. The angel who came to kill the firstborn came to kill the firstborn of everybody. If that sounds cruel and harsh and hard, remember that we all deserve to die. The fact that he let some people live is mercy and grace. But he says to them, look, if you'll take this blood from this lamb, this beautiful, innocent lamb, if you'll take this blood and if you'll put it on the doorposts of your house, and he even tells them how to do it, by the way. He said, I want you to, to put the blood in the trough. There was a trough by the door because they didn't have, I mean, when the rain came in, there was this trough to kind of keep the water from coming into the house. So you, you put the blood there, and there was a way they had to do it, specific. They had to put the, door, the blood, first of all, on the top, then on the two sides. That's important. Let me show you why. They would take hyssop, which is just a, a plant, and they didn't have paintbrushes, so like a plant, like a paint. They would go down, and they would go this, and that, and that. And what were they doing? Making the sign of thousands of years before his son died on a cross. Here, here, bam, bam. And when the angel of death saw the blood on that door, it passed over that house. Because it's afraid of blood, tell you why in just a moment. Then God continues after, the, after getting them out of, out of Egypt. The temple sacrifices were the same sort of thing. You take this innocent animal and you kill it when you've sinned. And God gave them also a promise, therefore, of a sacrifice yet to come. Everything he's pointing for isn't about animals because the blood of lambs isn't going to do anybody any good. It's just blood. But he's trying to teach them something how he's going to save this whole world through a single, innocent, representative sacrifice. This is what God says in Isaiah 53 as he talks about a Savior yet to come. Who believes what we've heard and seen? Who, who would have thought God's saving power would look like this? The servant grew up before God, a scrawny ceiling in a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him. By the way, 
if you were walking with Jesus in Jesus' time and you saw this really handsome, good-looking guy come down, it wasn't Jesus. You understand that? Because the scripture says there was nothing in his appearance. He was a carpenter. A rough Jewish carpenter. He was looked down and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him. We thought he was scum. But the fact is it was our pains he carried and our disfigurements. All the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself. That God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him. That ripped and tore and crushed him. Our sins. And he took the punishment that made us whole. Isaiah is talking about a Savior yet to come. Because it isn't lambs. It's someone else. That's the plot. Finally then, God does this. He says, let me set the conditions. Okay, I've, I've got to cross to you. Because you remember what he's trying to do in this whole thing is he's trying to restore relationship through faith in a single representative sacrifice. He has to tell us about our sins and we go, oh man, I really, I, I'm a sinner and I can't fix it myself. He's got to show us how much he loves us so that we will fall in love with him so we don't serve him in fear, but we serve him in love. He has to provide that innocent substitute. So he tells us all about it through a lamb and then promises something else. And then he says this. Now, here are the conditions. Here's where the plot gets misunderstood. You see, in the Old Testament, people looking at this story thought that all they had to do was kill an animal and God was happy. Even today, some people don't understand. They think that God had to kill his own son because, well, that's what God likes. Remember, there were Old Testament gods that were all the way. One called Molech. Molech believed in human sacrifice. It's almost like Molech was so mad and so angry, and the only way to, to, to appease his anger was you killed a human being, and he went, oh, yeah, man, I feel better now. Do you think God feels better because his son died? It had nothing to do with that. Why did his son die? I already told you. We don't know. We don't fully understand. Except the points that God was getting across. We'll talk about that more next week in the climax when, when Jesus comes. That's when we'll really get into why Jesus did what he did, and we still won't understand it, but hopefully it'll be a little, little clearer to us. But this is where the plot gets misunderstood in the Old Testament. They kept giving lots of sacrifice. Hey, okay, I said, no problem. I killed an animal. I'm okay. God says this, the multitudes of your sacrifices would honor to me. I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. See, they thought that the whole plot said, kill an animal, get forgiven. In Hosea, it says, it's for I desire mercy, not sacrifice, the acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. I'm not interested in your offerings. Don't you get it? Killing animals doesn't make me happy, God says. Psalms, it says this. You do not delight in sacrifice I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And then finally God says this through the prophet Micah. As people are trying to say, okay, what do you really want, God? What is this? I thought it was all about killing animals and that made you happy. God says, no. 
has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Then what's the big deal with an animal sacrifice? God just said it didn't do anything. Then why do it? Out of curiosity, why do it? You get to talk back. We've got a couple of minutes and we'll let you go. If God just said, I don't want your animal sacrifices, why did he ask us to do it? And what's the point? Anybody care to guess? Oh, hey, you're back. I missed you last week. Yes, Carson. Yes, Carson. Okay, very good. That's not bad. Not bad at all. Very good. Try this on for size. Remember, the blood of animals and goats doesn't do anything for God. Why did he tell us to do it? Very simple. Here it is. This is what God is looking for. Faith, trust, repentance, humility, compassion. God said, I'm going to do it through a sacrifice, and you have to believe it. For instance, in the Passover, he said, if you take this blood and you put it on the doorpost, I'll pass over you. How many people sat there and said, that's stupid. Why would God pass? I'm not going to put any blood on my doorpost. What would happen to those people? Dead. The people who put blood on the doorpost had to what? Faith that it would work. Not just faith that it would work, but trust that it would work. It's faith to say, well, if that would work, that would work. Trust is when you actually do it. God says, if you will sacrifice this animal, I will pass over you and I will forgive your sins. And you say, that doesn't make any sense. And God says, then your sins are not forgiven. If you say, Father, okay, I'm going to sacrifice this animal for one reason, and only one reason. You told me to. That's it. I have faith in you, and I have trust in you. And it has to be combined with repentance, humility, and compassion. If it's not, it's just a dead animal. Now, why is this important? Because next week when we look at the climax, when we look at the coming of His Son, everything we just talked about will be true in Jesus Christ and your faith in Him. God's perfect world was broken. And if you want to get mad at Adam and Eve, don't. Because if it hadn't been for them, it'd be you. Trust me, it'd be you. We'd be talking about you. Or we'd be talking about me. They are just our representatives. That's humanity. God wants His world back. And He's going to recreate it. But he's going to take the most precious thing he has that he can't redo. Insurance won't pay for it. He can't remake. You. He wants you in his new creation. And so he comes up with this incredible plan that makes no sense whatsoever. If we will put our faith in a single, innocent, representative sacrifice. God says, I'll forgive you and we'll store a relationship.
Does that make sense? No, it doesn't. That's why it's called faith. Would you stand with me for prayer? Father, we struggle with this because we want our minds to understand. We want our minds to comprehend. And we can't understand and comprehend. Father, it's just coming down to this. You have chosen this method. You've chosen this way. You've been teaching it for thousands of years. Next week when we look at what you did through your son, Father, hopefully more of it will make sense, but it will never perfectly make sense. We just know this is how you decided to do it. And we give you praise in the name of Jesus Christ that our relationship with you can be restored. Not because of anything we do, but because what of you, what you have done for us and you ask us to believe and trust. And Father, that we do in the name of Jesus right now. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Have a